Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I help organizations discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Writing engaging content is one of my superpowers. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a review and subscribe to hear our next episode. As a podcaster for justice, I stand with my sisters from the Women of Color podcasters community. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many others at the hands of police. This is a continuation of the systemic racism pervasive in our country since its inception, and we are committed to standing against racism in all its forms. Today, I speak with my friend Sankar Raman, who immigrated to the U.S. from India to attend graduate school. After a successful career in high tech, he now applies his technical knowledge, managerial skills, and pragmatic mind to founding and leading The Immigrant Story, a nonprofit organization that fosters empathy and builds a more inclusive community by sharing immigrant stories. Just a few days ago, The Immigrant Story hosted its second Immigrant Story Live storytelling experience. You can find the link to the show on YouTube in the show notes. I got the privilege of working with the storytellers as an assistant coach, and they all have amazing stories to share about entering the country undocumented and how they dealt with that. I hope you'll find it and take a listen. Hi, Sankar. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thank you. Good. I'm glad to hear that. How is your quarantine life going? Yeah, it is kind of tough, right? We are all in this self-imposed exile, I I suppose. Yeah, for me, you know, I am doing a lot of work trying to utilize this downtime, trying to do some of the stuff that we don't uh, normally do during the regular year. So that, that has been a blessing. We are completing a lot of projects, you know, creatively, as well as writing, as well as, uh, you know, projects that we want to get into. That is a good thing. The, you know, the other part is, you know, I am doing sitting a lot in front of the computer. So Mm. we started walking a lot and I'm Mm -hmm. doing 10,000 steps challenge. So, Ah. you know, it's kind of nice to just to go out with, uh, of course, you know, with some anxiety for immigrants like me, uh, where your family is dispersed across the world, uh, it is tough, you know, because mm-hmm. I think uh, you have to deal with that distance along with uh, you cannot even go if you wanted to. So the only connection you have is the phone lines. So that has been very difficult for a lot of us trying to deal with that distance suddenly becoming even more uh, because of the COVID, because there's restrictions in travel and stuff like that. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. And I think in the last four months, we are all trying to figure out how to survive this mode of uh, functioning, I think. It's discouraging thinking about when we will actually be able to leave the country and go anywhere else. Yeah. So can you share with our listeners about your childhood? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in deep down southeast of India in a small, small village, you know, really very small village. The village was about four streets. I went to the only school in that village, which was operated and maintained by my father. The village is like really a small 
well-knit community. Mm-hmm. I used to think of it even now, uh, you know, when I go back to that community, it is great. They ask you, when did you come? Come to my home and eat mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. You know, it's an open door, a literally open door. You know, no, none of the houses, they have closed doors. You can walk in to any of these houses. My parents, I don't think they worried about where I was till eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the night if I don't mm-hmm. show up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they don't care whether I ate because they know that uh, the village, the community will feed me. And, uh, you know, I used to go every day, pick up my friends before we go to school. Uh, the breakfast in somebody's houses looked good. You know, we always helped ourselves to that <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> wow. Things like that, you know. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we will walk in, you know, even to their kitchen and see what's going on. And that is, I think, is a beautiful thing about that community that I miss the most. And the second part of that community, which I really came to relish a lot and which I kind of use now, is we grew up in a time when entertainment is through personal storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we kids... You know, we didn't have any other diversion, so to speak. You know, there is not even papers, newspapers, you know, books to read. You know, we we entertain each other by talking with each other. And the most popular kids are the guys who are usually good storytellers, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we end up telling stories to each other, enjoying each other. So, and that is what it was. You know, I often tell people that I grew up in India's version of Kyoto, which is Hmm. basically thousands of temples around, surrounded by paddy fields, silk weavers, that kind of a town environment, basically. Wow. So you probably had a lot of aunties and uncles and people that were looking after you. Yeah. Wow. That sounds, that sounds blissful really right now, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Too much, I think, too. You know, they were all in your life. Oh, Uh, really? (laughs) (laughs) You know, the whole village knew about everybody's life, I think. I bet. And so then how old were you when you left the village? I went to my father. I have been pleading with him to get me to a better school Mm. in the bigger town. Mm -hmm. And he would argue back and saying, if you don't go to our own school, who is going to go, you know, so you have to put up with it. You have to be a role model. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, so, you know, we were fighting. Uh, I I don't know what it was with me to get out of that Uh village, but I kind of wanted to get out. Mm -hmm. And so by the time he let me go, it was eighth grade, even Mm -hmm. though his school had up to eighth grade, you know, like, you know, it was like a one to eight. And then high school, I had to go to a different Mm -hmm. uh, high school in that village. So he let me go. So I went to a nearby big city and then I started my high school there. And then once I finished high school, I must have been about seventh grade means what, maybe 12. To us, it's school. So he got right off me from the house. (laughs) I remember graduating high school a little bit early because I think uh, I was too much at home, I think. (laughs) He's trying to... He was tired of arguing with you, probably. Huh? Yeah, right, right. Around that time, I was, you know, ready, I think. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it was kind of daunting to live without your parents. Uh, uh, and then ever since then, my connection to my community has been summer times, mm-hmm. sporadic visiting now. I try to make it once a year these days, but I haven't been there for a long time now. What was the city that was closest to your village? The nearest city, uh, nothing really, uh, mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, that is anything 
thing that is uh, known chennai madras mm-hmm. is about 150 miles north mm-hmm. of that village basically mm-hmm. and then it is very close to sri lanka actually oh right yeah, in a very mm-hmm. tip of india mm-hmm. you know where did you go to high school then did you go in madras or yeah, chennai it, no i went no? to uh, you know another city it's called oh, trichy uh-huh. which is you know very historically interesting that's where robert clive british guys established the east india company first mm. uh, you know so you know that is a big town actually very beautiful town that's where i went to high school and i finished high school from there it's a beautiful uh, historic city interestingly last year last september i went to the town after a long long time what was it like growing up in india what are some of your favorite childhood memories It is kind of tough, right? I grew up at a time when India was coming slowly out of the post-independence uh, socialism. I was at the peak of the uh, socialism when India was more and more aligned towards Russia. Mm. And, uh, you know, India at that time when I grew up was a f- one of the few countries kicked out big brand names like coke and stuff mm-hmm. so when i grew up you know i didn't realize this one until i started looking for a job the job front wise you know unemployment was 28% mm-hmm. and for some of the communities for me like it was even higher maybe around 50% unemployment rate i think it is really tough finding a job so growing up is tough in that environment but it was a great place you know for me you know i grew up with the culture the music the food the family i didn't travel that much you know i never traveled north of chennai um, that much so my fan was very little of traveling wise but within that you know i really enjoyed my friends i played cricket for school so that was entertaining you know mm-hmm. that will keep me busy for a long time you know mm-hmm. so i would say vivid enriching childhood along with this uncertainty of your life or future mm. what's going to happen and do you remember the kinds of messages that you received or what your feelings were about white people in india i know there's a lot of you know with colonization there's a lot of tension there sometimes with white people the colonizers Yeah, you know, that is kind of interesting though. Even today, India, you know, doesn't talk a lot about mm-hmm. colonial issues. I don't know whether it is good or bad, except that it memorializes, really celebrates the freedom fighters of India, especially Gandhi. You know, it is more like learning experience of the struggle of his, uh, you know, political struggle as well as India's independence struggle. But we don't talk a lot, you know, we the history books never talks a lot about the colonialism and the ill feel of that you know so much so that india and pakistan when it got independence there was you know a bitter struggle millions mm-hmm. of people died mm-hmm. millions of people were displaced india you know never talks about that even there is no memorial for it uh, there is no oral history tradition mm-hmm. about preserving that mm-hmm. and i think in certain ways it's good because i think india is looking forward to what it needs to do at the same time uh, we never talk about what happened uh, so 
uh, it, it is good and bad, I think. So we never paid attention to this colonialism, but we really enjoyed cricket was connection for us, mm-hmm. our colonial masters, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So I closely followed international cricket. Mm-hmm. I grew up at a time when apartheid was, you know, very strong in South Africa. Mm-hmm. There was a ban apartheid countries, meaning nobody can play cricket against South Africa, Rhodesia mm-hmm. those days. Uh, Rhodesia didn't exist after 1978, I think. There used to be like uh, South Africa versus England or South Africa versus Australia. You know, I always had a mixed feeling about that. That is the only thing that we used to think about and talk about in a politics-wise. But otherwise, that is our contact to the white world, I think. I remember when my husband and I went to go apply for our visas to India in Japan. Mm -hmm. And his visa was like three times the cost as mine. (laughs) Uh (laughs) and i was teasing him i said oh yeah india is getting back at the british right right, right, right. (laughs) that was pretty funny it was Uh it was odd that it was three times i mean british a british visa was three times as expensive as an american one so Uh uh, that's my funny story (laughs) (laughs) that was back in like 1989. 1989. 1989. That was a long time ago. So what made you decide to move to Oregon and then stay here? Yeah. So for Oregon, it's kind of uh, interesting. Before my job at uh, this corporation, tech uh, company, I used to be in the academic research. Uh, So I was working in Georgia Tech in Atlanta, you know, so and then, yeah, I, uh, you know, for some reason, I changed direction and I changed to industry. And when Mm -hmm. I got a job with Intel, you know, my first job was uh, with uh, Intel at New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, you know, Rio Rancho, actually. Anyway, the job was come to Oregon, where their technology development site was, and then develop the technology with the technology development uh, folks. That means I will stay here for six months, Mm -hmm. nine months, 10 months, and then go back and implement it. And then we'll come back to the next cycle. It was okay when my kid was young in uh, elementary school, even. I remember he would miss part of the schooling, like second grade or something. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, when he grew up a little bit older, we thought it would be better to just to find something permanent. So, I mean, not uh, avoid travel. So I moved to Oregon, got a job here with the same company, but different area. So we have been here since then. When you first came to Oregon, did you decide that you really liked it here or? Yeah, it's yeah. Really, you know, I always liked it. You know, when I first came here, very first time, I remember going to the uh, Multnomah Falls and, you know, the typical stuff that you would do. I really thought this is a beautiful place, heaven on the earth. My colleagues from uh, New Mexico, for example, I remember saying, them saying, Oh, you haven't seen Colorado, have you? It's like, you know, <laughs> no, I haven't seen Colorado yet. You know, at that time I didn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is better than, you know, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Really? I was thinking, my goodness, is there a place that is better than this? <laughs> so going back to when you first arrived in the U.S., how mm-hmm. old were you? Were you like 20? Uh, no, I was maybe 21. 21. Okay. Did yeah. you go to college in India first? I forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, got it. 
Yeah, I came here to go to grad school. Um, okay. I was in, you know, I got in here to do PhD in physics. I ended up changing in the middle of that and then got a, a degree in PhD in engineering when I finished mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it was great, you know, but from India to Indiana, of course, you know, it's a great change of yes. uh, <laughs> life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so what, what surprised you when you first came to the U.S. and was it hard for you to acclimate? Yeah, yeah. Oh, a lot of things changed. You know, I used to be a very big vegetarian. I was brought up in a very conservative vegetarian uh, family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember the very first day, you know, I came to uh, Purdue, you know, West Lafayette, Indiana, small town. I remember I had to take a bus ride from Toledo, Ohio to West Lafayette, Indiana. It took a whole day, you know, Greyhound bus. I was so hungry. I didn't eat anything. Uh, You know, and uh, those days, you know, I didn't know much about it. So I went to the apartment I got and got out. I was hungry. There's no food. I went into this place. I found this is a eating place. And that was McDonald's. (laughs) <laughs> and I was so hungry. I didn't know what uh, I wanted. I looked at the menu and I said, give me that and this, you know, potatoes looked good. The fries looked good. And I didn't realize I'm eating the meat for the first time. So wow. that's when I, uh, those days, you cannot survive as vegetarian. It seemed like I was in the middle of meat and potatoes country. <laughs> I know. And those also, days. I think in McDonald's, don't they use beef tallow for their fries? Or, I mean, right, right. Fries even, like, yeah, <laughs> even fries was, uh, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. Even me, uh, fries were, n- you know, not purely vegetarian those uh-huh. days. I think now, maybe uh, those days, the coffees were terrible. Cheap. <laughs> But before Starbucks, right? Uh-huh. So those are all immediate culture shock for me. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't understand the English. I went to the first class. I remember they were talking about jokes about Indiana politics, which I did not understand. Even now, I don't understand <laughs> I, Indiana politics. I, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't yes. understand those jokes either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, it is a lot of adjustments. But yeah, it is kind of funky few years. But but that fortunately, you know, I think the community community that you know I had at Purdue was really strong. I still remain friends with the people that I went to grad school with. You found people that you could connect to pretty yes. early on. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, I always connected with the people I think, you know, I tend to because I think it's a, it's my village upbringing where mm. I grew up with a bunch of uh, kids and so, you know, you have to survive socially, I think. So, yeah, that tells me a lot about you. I've learned a lot about you, Sankar. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Buddy. So what obstacles have you overcome in your life and how did you do so? You know, I have to say I interviewed 160 people and a lot of these folks that we interview, they have come through a lot of tough times. Mm-hmm. You know, my life overall is okay. Of course, life being life, we all come up with a lot of, you know, ups and downs. You know, some of us went deep down, but I wouldn't want to compare my obstacles with the stories that I hear with my folks. I think I would say, you know, I'm totally, truly blessed to have a life that was okay. So let's talk about the recent focus on Black Lives Matter. Have you gotten Uh, involved in the movement? And is it prompting more conversations about race with people? 
that you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am very considering my age and stuff like that. I am not going to be able to participate in the protest and stuff, but mm-hmm. we help in other ways, you know, promotions as well as contribution, consciously do those things and make sure that uh, we support them in other ways. But I think it's a very important conversation and right now, the focus, as it is rightly so, it is about the struggle of African-Americans in this country and the long history that goes uh, with that uh, particular uh, group of people. It goes way back. And, uh, and you know, to tell you the truth, Marie, you know, I often think because of those civil rights that, you know, the African-Americans fought for, and got over the years that really helped the immigrants of color such as me you know i always think of the 1965 immigration act which was enacted after the civil rights and signed in that allowed me personally to come to this country and that is the result of the civil rights movement i really look up to the leaders of the civil rights movements all this life aclu all those things they really help the immigrants of color. Xenophobia is a form of racism, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. The immigrants of color are always in this country treated as a part of othering process. In that perspective, we have a lot of empathy. We we are in it with them. I personally feel I am in it with them. I am 100% support their efforts. Mm -hmm. Uh, For us, you know, immigrant story, the conversations we are doing right now is, you know, we talk to a lot of African immigrants who come to this country as refugees or immigrants or asylees from Africa. You know, often they tell us about how their history of this country is different from African-American history. Irrespective of that, they are always have to deal with the same kind of racism. We did an interview two weeks ago with a very young man, 19 years old, going to PSU, a refugee from Congo. And when we talk to those folks, you know, young guy like him, and, you know, we just ask him what the BLM means to him. And I often reflect on what they tell us. It varies, but I think that is where we really need to pay some attention to. There is other subtle things that happens too for us, even though we have consciously done this one before, and I think we need to pay more attention to it. And it's about a photography, how we photograph people of color, especially Blacks and refugees. So there is that implicit bias. Mm. How does it turn into photography? Because uh, we often talk about implicit bias in other areas, but in photography, we don't specifically talk about this. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, when we started Immigrant Story, we deliberately defined the style that we are going to use in photographing, especially refugees, you know. Mm. How do we photograph a refugee? You know, 2018, just after we started Immigrant Story, uh, the National Geography magazine came out with an issue that specifically talked about race in photography hmm. and specifically to National Geography. At that time, the, the whole issue was dedicated to race and the editorial piece that they wrote was just about a, apology. The apology being when, you know, the National Geography was dominated by white men. Susan Goldberg was the editor-in-chief at that time. I think she's still editor-in-chief now. She's the first woman and also happens to be a Jewish woman in that organization. 
And they talk about how when they go to Africa and took pictures of uh, folks, they often have this superior lens that they looked at their mm-hmm. subjects. And, you know, that is the years of uh, colonial, yes. orientalist, racist lens that we have looked mm-hmm. and we have taught. And any photographer, even me, if I remember right, when I first went to India, I bought a camera, I started looking looking at my own people through that lens because that's the only photography lessons and uh, views that you have. So when I started the immigrant story, one of the things that we did was how do we photograph refugees? And we needed to get all those bias out Mm -hmm. and we looked at it in a different way. So I think that conversation needs to come up and talk more Mm -hmm. uh, about how do we write How do we tell the stories? The famous TED Talk, of course, now everybody has listened to probably. If you have not, I think you should by Adichie about the other side of the story. Mm -hmm. And she talks specifically about this, right? Colonial influence on writing. Whereas, you know, photography, we haven't had that much discussion Mm -hmm. on it. African-American, they are portrayed in certain ways. You know, refugees, you always have an image back of your mind, how that's going to be. Uh, Those are all the things we have changed successfully, hopefully, Mm. in our immigrant story. That I I think this kind of conversation gets forced because of BLM, I think. Uh Right. Did you see recently about Simone Biles, her photography in Vogue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw that. I Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, this is the same thing, right? You know, yes. this, And why didn't they hire a black photographer instead of Annie Leibovitz? And, right, yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think the way they look at it, you know, do they consciously decouple their mind and declutter their mind mm-hmm. before they went and, uh, right. you know, you right. know what I mean? Yeah. That's a question every photographer should be asking, right. right? What am I influenced by? What am I influenced by? And what is my, like Ansel Adam used to say, my mind's eye is looking through the scene mm-hmm. and what this mind's eye is biased with, you know? Yes. How do I declutter that? Mm. And I think that is a conversation that needs to happen in the broader space, I think. Yes, I agree. When you were talking earlier about India and that there were not conversations about colonialism and and then the partition, that there's not a lot of conversations about the conflicts between Hindu and Muslim people, I wonder whether there are parallels with the U.S. and the fact that we don't talk openly about, until recently, we have not talked openly about racism in the U.S. Do you think there's some similarity there in the conflicts right now in India between Hindus and Muslims and the fact that there haven't been conversations? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it is easy, you know, uh, I think I think I have to be careful because I have lived here a <laughs> right. lot more years yes. in the United States mm-hmm. than in India. So I look at India as a visitor's eye, even though my early times were spent there, right? So I had to be careful about what India is now. When I l- So my image, like just other immigrants, we live in a time-warped world, meaning I live pre- 
leaving the country. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, my image of India now is probably different than what India is actually is. India is, you know, has other issues like uh, religious issues, mm-hmm. caste issues. Caste is, is India's version of race mm-hmm. issues. It's a big problem. And the religion, it is like a multi-religious place, right? There is no other country in the world has this amount of melting pot in mm-hmm. India. It's not melting pot, really. Uh, right. It, 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 there is no melting going on there. Uh, but it no is melting. Most, <laughs> no melting, right? It is more like a coexisting, so to speak. It's like a bento box. Right, Maybe right. instead of a melting pot, right? Right, right. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. But to India's credit, it is a secular country. It is a only surviving democracy in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. It's a only secular country in that part of the world. A lot of things go- goes for it, for the coexistence of all these multicultural, multi-religious, multi-racial existence there. But they have a long ways to go in creating the conversation that allows them peacefully coexist. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very fact that, you know, just like America, there is a nationalist movement and that was able to gain power just like any other countries like India, Brazil, US, UK to a certain extent. All these countries seems like there is a resurgence of nationalism. And I hope it is just a passing phase mm-hmm. and we will come out of it throughout the world and go back to secularism. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where the, some of the work that I am doing really helps us understand it. As you know, Marie, we do this project called To Bear Witness, which is that project is about survivors of genocide, different genocides, you know, whether it is Rwanda or European genocides like Holocaust or Bosnian genocides. What I think people need to do is these genocides happens if you don't pay attention Mm -hmm. to this race relations getting worse and worse and worse and worse and then before you know it you start to have this type of genocide that happened in Rwanda for example once it starts once you push the country to that spot like Bosnia or Rwanda, then you are going to reach a point of no return and the damage is so hurtful. You have so many people die, right? Mm-hmm, right. So I'm going to ask you about the immigrant story, but I have one final question before we get into that, which is about white nationalism and racism and mm-hmm. your experience since the 2016 election. Do you feel like the outright racism How does it compare to when you first arrived in the U.S.? And do you experience discrimination on a daily basis? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Mine is mostly xenophobia, and which is kind of a racist attitude. So I think it exists in different levels and different parts of the world, parts of the country. Changes, right? You know, when I arrived during that time, it was Iran issue was big. So xenophobia, everybody like me was considered as Iranian. And you saw that, you know, even in 2016 election uh, in February, two Indians were shot and one of them were dead, thinking, that these guys were Iranian. You know, go home is a common hate speech that was, uh, you know, spoken to people. For, for any immigrant of color, you often encounter at least go home time and again, right? Mm-hmm. You know, my survival technique is is always like, okay, you don't do certain things. You don't go to certain places. 
you don't go to places after certain hours. It's always there on your mind, you know, be mm-hmm. careful about it. And so it varies from time to time. You know, it may be Iran issue in the 70s, our U.S., you know, auto industries having issues in the 80s where the Japanese automakers were dominating U.S. automakers in the Midwest. It was a big deal. Our dot busters of New Jersey where the Indians were targeted, especially women, uh, and the Muslims of color were targeted after 9-11, and then now COVID. So every decade, the issues may be different, but then you have this xenophobia about certain sections of people. This othering happens all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And it varies uh, from... It's simple, go home, uh, hate speeches to cancers, people shot dead, or you hear about uh, Gurdwara getting attacked like a mass killing there, or you hear about a gas station, Sikh was shot dead, things like that. You, you have all these incidences happening anywhere between hate speech to actual killings, right? Mm-hmm. So I am really afraid uh, this election cycle is going to to be uh, the Asian Americans are going to get the brunt of this. You know, yes. this, this American politics, it goes way back. You know, it goes wasp versus German. It goes against uh, Italian Catholics or Irish Catholics. It goes white versus white, Eastern versus Western Europeans, and then Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans. And this is classic American political exploitation and uh, this election cycle is going to be worse i think mm-hmm. i agree you know 2016 was worse and uh-huh. 2020 is going to be even bad mm-hmm. i think that you're right about that i know that you were prompted by the 2016 election to start yeah. the immigrant stories when did the thought first occur to you how did you start it and what is immigrant story doing now Yeah, thank you for asking this question. I think arriving at 2016, I was uh, retired. I remember very well. So I went to India, I went to Japan and and I traveled East Coast, all those places. Uh, We had a good time spending time out and walking and seeing places and stuff. I really thought that I would be really good uh, not doing anything. But I evolved as a photographer by then, taking, you know, travel pictures and then then my caption to the pictures have you know started to grow bigger and bigger so i would write something you know i remember writing something uh, mostly about the places i saw what it triggered or whatever um, so my captions became big you know big in the sense like maybe 200 words and mm-hmm. a photograph and a, you know a story about that photography i just got into that space for somehow and it was more like you know i used to think hey you Images worth thousand words. What if if I throw in a few words on the top of it? Does it make it a little bit better? That was where I was. And then the election happened. You know, when I came back, it was October, I think. Finally, started to actually pay attention to election. And as you know, the election started with this guy uh, calling uh, Mexican immigrants as you know rapists and murderers. And then I started hearing about woman wearing hijab. She was taking a trimet bus going to school. She 
was 17, my school student, her hijab was pulled. Argonian interviewed her. It was saying she had blood coming out because she was having hair clips in her holding the hijab and that pulled something like that, right? I was hearing that kind of stories and then the Muslim ban happened. I was hearing about this baby who was supposed to come to YHSU for the heart condition, two months old, and she was top uh, Dubai and not able to come to the surgery, scheduled surgery in OHSU, and it became a big issue because of the Muslim ban. And then on the end of uh, February 22nd, I think, it was in Kansas, like two Indian engineers, young guys, and they went out after uh, working for a happy hour, had a beer, and some guy walked in and uh, thinking that these guys were Iranians and started shooting at them. At the end of the day, there were like three guys were shot and one of them died. Uh, it triggered a Hard to me okay. uh, when I was first came to this country. You know, I was in a bar. Somebody hit me hard. You know, for no reason, uh, and he thought I was uh, Iranian. So, uh, you know, when the news was coming out like that, in one after another, this was before the Max event happened. Max event happened in the May uh, time okay. frame in the summer. This happened in February, right after inauguration. One after another, things like that. So I thought, you know, I should do something about it. You know, what am I going to do with me by myself after thinking about all these things? And I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to start telling the stories of immigrants, especially immigrants of color, by with the photography and writing that I could do. My caption was becoming big, but I was not a journalist. You know, I, I was not a writer. English is not even my native language. I learned it actually after coming to this country. So, you know, I didn't know anything about writing. My wife is a native uh, English speaker and she would edit it and I started writing. That's how it started. I went and uh, got a domain name and uh, watched YouTube, developed the website. And that's how the immigrant story started. And today, we have about 50 volunteers, as you know. I am really grateful for the volunteers, and they bring in so much skill. I at times look at it like a motley crew of uh, people. <laughs> they, you know what, what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. They are like, uh, they somehow, they fit in. Uh, eventually, it all works like a well-oiled machine, but then mm-hmm. they are all, you know, seems like seemingly loosely connected. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that the interesting thing at the strategic planning session that you that you held, uh-huh. one of the things that struck me is that people are connected to the immigrant story because they feel a passion for this topic. Yeah, right. and, they're, and they're generally passionate people, you know, already. Mm-hmm. So that's probably why it feels motley. There's a lot of opinions, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Very strong opinions yes. and a very strong skill sets. Yes, yes. You know, lifelong skill sets, so to speak. Right. And a lot of partner organizations we have. That is, I, I just grew by itself. You know, mm-hmm. I cannot take credit for it. Yes, you, you can take credit for it. Somewhere. I cannot, I think. <laughs> because you, you can imagine the early stories I wrote, uh, my wife told me, man, your English is atrocious. Oh, really? I, I am, you have to find an editor. I'm not <laughs> going to be editing this story because I have a day job, you know. Uh-huh. You know, I said, what do I do? I put in an ad in the neighborhood next door, you know, and then people started coming and helping me, you know, like yeah. I found Janet who was a C PA, who uh-huh. is our treasurer now, you know, she, you know, yeah, retired treasurer, Caitlin, first one who came in there, you know, was an yeah. editor, still an editor for us. 
people are, people are looking for ways to help. So right, you, right, right. Yeah. What surprised you most about starting a nonprofit? As you know, I came from industry, corporate world, right? The nonprofit is 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 a totally different ball game. I did not know what I was getting into. <laughs> I really didn't. It is just like I was learning as it was growing. I used to help out. You know, we used to Intel. We used to help out. Uh, we used to work with the team trying to get some engineers together, teach some science and technology to folks. But, but you know, that is nothing. It's just like volunteering is one thing. You do volunteering. That is different. You know, somebody else is running the show. You just have to show up at two o'clock or whatever and spend two hours on a weekend and go home. But when you are running your organization, everything about it uh, is, is different. The most important thing is how do you create funds? How do you create good quality content? How do you create this quality content and make it accessible to people? What makes it consumable? How do you, you know, make sure this content is consumed, consuming? These are all my problem because uh-huh. I think we are doing yeah, digital media publishing nonprofit. And those things as a unique problem, I'm sure every nonprofit has their own problem. It all centers around how do we generate funds, make your job sustained and uh, meaningful and relevant. And that is, I think, is the most important question we have to ask. You know? uh-huh. and how many immigrant stories have you documented so far? Oh, my goodness. So I think we have interviewed 160, 170. I think we have published more than 150. Some of them are short. Some of them are long. That's our core, right? Our core is writing stories, taking photographs of uh, the immigrants. That's what we do, right? Right. Uh, And then we do other things uh, on the side. It's amazing. Really amazing. Can you think of, this is going to be a hard question for you, but what's the most vivid immigrant story that comes to your mind? I feel like I'm I'm a parent, you know, when you are a parent, <laughs> you know, you can you sound like, which choose your kid? Which one is good kid? You know, it's like, no, I can't tell you okay, because okay. they're all good. Yeah. You know what I mean? You yeah. know what I'm trying to say. I understand. You don't have to answer my question if you don't right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Because it is tough, you know, yeah. because I think this is, this is something I want to share with you. Maybe I shouldn't share in public, but I will tell you that you know, I really love these stories. I don't need to go mm-hmm. to all these interviews because mm-hmm. other people contact, but I find the excuses to go to these interviews. Uh-huh. I attend almost all the interviews uh-huh. because, you know, I really do want to hear these stories because, you know, I, I don't need to go because they are all professional journalists. They could conduct their interviews. They can right. write, right. but I, I find excuses. Oh, you know, can I, I, I go there anyway? Uh, and I, as you know, I cannot keep my mouth shut. I ask questions. I'm in the middle of this interview. I really, really enjoy uh, listening to these people's stories. All kinds of stories we did. Folks fleeing communist Romania are finding love during the Second World War to a person who was driving thousands of miles to see her in a communist country. Our Alakar stories, our Rwandan survivor story. But the most important thing, I think, is all of them, we heard it's like uh, all kinds of stories we heard. I really think that I am so blessed to hear them. And they trust us too with their most personal stories. Uh-huh. And they open their heart. And most of the time they ask us to go to their home. We sit, listen to their stories. You know, some of them are very, very tough to hear. You know, uh-huh. every one of them moves you. 
Mm-hmm. But I think like uh, you are talking in this show, the thing that strikes out is the human resilience. How in spite of all these hardships, uh, we are able to get out and find a home here and be a part of this American dream and create a family. That is the beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. The second theme that I often hear is all these folks, they have every reason. I think Elizabeth starts one of the stories. I think it's a Holocaust a survivor story. Uh, starts that story by writing that this couple has every reason to hate everybody, but Uh they don't. Uh You know, that's a beautiful part of these folks are, I think they don't, they give back, they want to give back, they like this community, uh, even though they have seen some of the worst, worst conditions, uh, humanity's worst crisis, like Holocaust or Rwanda and stuff like that, but they do come back. Uh-huh. And they do want to give. They want to show love and appreciation. They make it as a their mission. And you interviewed uh, Olive. Uh-huh. You know, you know, she has probably every reason not to think about it. And as a teenager, she went back to that refugee camp. Things like that. You know, I see that story coming over and over again. And then the third thing is, this another survivor told us, she says, America is full of angels. <laughs> oh, you know, really? Yeah. yeah. At this time, it looks like tough to think America is full of angels. I, I don't know. think so. I know. I know. I remember that from the places from the margins. I don't remember whether it was so sad. I don't remember which, which woman said, oh, you know, she had a really positive view of America, because uh, yeah. Nora El Magbari was there uh-huh. helping her, and she, yeah, yeah and I, it, it was kind of jarring to hear that because it yeah. doesn't feel that way right now to us. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it is true, though. You know, I yeah. think we forget about the core of America uh-huh. is all about giving, and I right. think I think we do have that heart. Uh-huh. And I think we need to go back. But I think the fact that she wanted to appreciate that, you know, we hear the stories about high school counselor taking the time and uh-huh. making effort. You know, we hear the stories from young kids, you know, hey, that high school teacher or the principal took the time. You know, I heard the story yesterday uh-huh. about this uh, this teacher pulled him out, uh, this guy, and told him, you know, had a talk. And that changed his life and mm-hmm. helped him out. Elizabeth Flores, for example, talks about her mentor. Uh, that guy dropped her off in college. These stories like that, you hear that America is still has a heart. These are the three things, that common thing that I really want to go back to. The humanity of uh, America it lives in the resilience of its people mm-hmm. and how much we want to give back, which in turn makes us that America is full of angels. That's a wonderful theme for me to think about. So I know on a lighter topic, I know that you like to cook. What's, yeah. one, of your, <laughs> what's one of your favorite things to cook? Oh my goodness. It is out of necessity, right? You know, yeah. when, you know, you have to remember, I came from a spicy place. <laughs> Right. Before this immigrant story, I had a blog called thespicysoul.com. And oh, I really? Think- <laughs> is it still out there? I'm going to go look for it. It is still, it is oh, still out there, but uh-huh. not maintained well. Uh-huh. I'm still paying the money, uh-huh. you know, keep the domain name and stuff, uh-huh. you know. You know, when I came from India to Indiana, Indiana is a bland country. Yes. Know, there's no spice. <laughs> this is before, right? Uh-huh. Before the Indian restaurants came to and invaded Indiana. Uh-huh. And the people in general, 
you know, if you put black pepper, that is too hot for them. The salt is okay, a little bit is okay. It's a meat and potato country, right? Corn and, and there's a beautiful cooking and I'm not blaming that. But for me, I was missing it, right? I was missing it. As a boys, you know, we never went into the kitchen. The, the moms, they never let the boys, you know, come into the kitchen. The girls, they were in the kitchen helping the moms. So I never went to the kitchen. My mom, when she heard that I am going to America, she really got worried. Man, what are you? <laughs> what are you eat? Of course. Yeah, what are you going to eat? What are you going to eat, right? Uh-huh. She asked me, okay, I'm going to teach you your favorite cooking. Come oh, inside the kitchen. Nice. Right. And she would start asking me to cut the vegetables for her and uh, things like that. And then she packed a lot of this curry powder, which from my part of the country, it's called sambar powder, which is without that, we cannot live. Even today, even till today, okay, Marie, I'm not kidding you. You know, I won't tell her how old she is. Then you will start guessing my age. But <laughs> and she, even to, until today, I never bought sambar powder in my life. Mm. She still packs sambar powder for me you know really? oh, <laughs> yes and wow. she still makes a sambar powder for me when i go to india she has already oh i made this for you oh my you know pa- I, she was acid packed everything nicely with a ziplock and uh, i bring oh her ziplock every time and she keeps <laughs> a ziplock with her until next time she will pack it and send it back to me. Is that like garam masala? Is it some kind of a, yeah, yeah. a spice it is mix? A, yeah, it's a spice mix and uh-huh. very unique for that uh, family's kitchen. And uh-huh. I can never bring myself oh to my buy gosh. buy the sambar powder at, uh, at the stores. So I needed to develop my own cooking. So I was a scientist, right? So kitchen, I would feel like, okay, I'm, it's my lab. You're doing your science. science right, <laughs> yeah. right. I mix yeah. it up. Yeah. Even today, that's what I do. Yeah. And, and then there was the instant pot uh, pressure cooker came uh-huh. along. Uh-huh. And I buy that. And now I developed recipes for it. Uh-huh. This spicy soul is all about recipes, vegetarian recipes developed for instant pot Uh and it is okay you know it is only for my family specifically Uh who wants to do this cooking and i just put those things in there there's a bunch of recipes usually the recipes that i like you know you only cook the things that you like yes yeah are you still vegetarian no, no, no. no. no not really. But my vegetarianism went off the door when I entered that McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> you got the taste of, yeah. Taste of, yeah. I still prefer to cook only vegetarian food, though. I'm trying to eat low on the food chain. I eat some meat, but it's in a minority, generally. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting because when my husband and I, when we came to, uh, back to Oregon after living in Japan, there yeah. was one Indian restaurant in Portland. That was it. Yeah. And it was yeah. a really expensive one. It was called Plainfield Mayor. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know. Probably, uh. I think it was gone when by the time you arrived. But, uh-huh. you know, I learned to love Indian food in Japan because they have amazing yeah. Indian food in Japan. And so I really craved Indian food and I couldn't get it anywhere. So I'm so happy that we have so many more choices here now. Yeah, th- right, thanks right. To, thanks to Intel, probably. 
Right. No, I think I think you know the food cart. You know, you know that, right? Yeah. The food right. cart scene changed the food scene in in, uh-huh. in Portland, and a lot of the Middle Eastern, Thai, lot of different cuisines in Portland, and that happened only in the last twenty years, really. Uh-huh. You know, even when I first came, there were only two or three Indian restaurants. Now you have a bunch of them. You know, there's more out in Washington County, really, than right, anywhere right, else. Yeah. Right. So I'm on your blog. I'm going to link to it. I think that's <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then you also like to take photos. Where's one of the favorite places in the world that you've taken photos? Oh my goodness. Right now I don't I used to be a lot of landscape photography. I was really into it, travel photography. Now I only do portrait photography with uh, the immigrant story. I don't have time for others. But beautiful place. Oregon is fantastic place, right? Oregon is uh, obviously the heaven on earth. Bandon Beach is one of my favorite oh. places. It is beautiful. I love that place. You know, Southwest, it is a beautiful four corners of New Mexico, Utah, Arizona. That area, I could live there and wander around mm-hmm. forever. The national parks there. The national mm-hmm. park system, I think America got it made and got mm-hmm. it right. That is beautiful. But, you know, I love Japan also. I have got there several times mm-hmm. and I love Kyoto or you know mm-hmm. photographing in Japan I love India photographing in India is fantastic I keep on going back to my areas I need to travel more the world is a beautiful place India before covid is kind of polluted like stuff with the dense smog there photographing color seems to be unnatural but I hope one day it will all clean up and it will come to the farmer mm-hmm. glory mm-hmm. you know I think you should sell your photos to raise money for the immigrant story because you have have such an eye i mean the photos you showed me of japan i loved so there's another fundraising idea for you yeah thank you thank (laughs) you you know i i had to get back to landscape you have so much already actually the photography i don't know which came first but you know i tell my wife between my wife and photography we have been in the middle of some of the most beautiful places Mm. in the world most of them are america's national park it's a beautiful spots here yeah definitely so where can listeners connect with you online sankar me up at theimmigrantstory.org i really would like them to read a story and come to our events come to our exhibition there are two exhibitions opened even with covid going on and if you happen to be in portland you can go to the oregon historical society it started opening its door on 11th of july Mm -hmm. Uh, the other exhibition is in portland international arrival terminal if you are in portland airport it is near baggage claim five and you can see our pictures there and our website has got a lot of stories a lot of events coming up excellent so my final question is about grit resilience and connection is there a particular story or a person who has demonstrated grit resilience and connection that has inspired you we are going back to this one story again oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, and it doesn't have to be the immigrant story it could be somebody in your life when you were a child right, or yeah. often i think of genocide survivors we are trying to propose a book of, of it and it's all full of grit you know everyone is a story could be made as a movie as a mm-hmm. as a Schindler's list mm-hmm. if you will the stories of survival 
uh, stories of people helping and resilience, you know, after you survive that, you know, what do you do? My thoughts goes into people who come from a refugee camp who spent most of their adulthood in refugee camp without actually going to school or anything like that. Come here to Portland and, uh, you know, come out of that and create their own skills and survive and make a home and uh, raise a family. Mm-hmm. Those are all the stories you will find in our website, of course. Yeah, I keep thinking about immigrants when a lot of parents, mostly white parents, are fretting about their children mm-hmm. and losing learning time. And what will they do if they don't get good learning? And I'm thinking, well, think about what immig- a lot of immigrants, especially refugees, go through when they lose learning time. It's, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll be okay in the end. Yeah, here's another question for you then. What can parents or mentors do to instill grit or resilience in their children or others? How yeah. can someone increase their resilience? Right. I, I think it is very important to expose them, post them of the stories of resilience. I, you know, Mary, I, you know, after hearing about 160 stories, right, mm-hmm. of resilience, you know, every one of them invariably is a story of resilience. I fundamentally, I want us to think that we are all human beings are hardwired to be resilient. If you believe in evolution, you would think that you won't survive and be here, but for our resilience, human DNA that we have. So I think what parents can do is to really try to tell their kids, hey, you are hardwired for this. You know, you are hardwired for coming out of any situation you are given with, even if you are dealt with bad cards. So that's what I would, as a parent, keep reminding them of that and ask them to listen, learn, read a story of resilience from anywhere. We interviewed a person, a last boy of Sudan, who walked thousands of miles to survive. So, you know, things like that, you know, just remind them and ask them that, you know, uh, reflect on the fact that we are hardwired for this. Yes. Thank you so much, Sankar. This has been a total pleasure. It's been wonderful to get to know you on a different level. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really love what you're doing and I hope it grows and you continue to hear more stories from what you are creating. Thank you for joining today and hearing Sankar's story. Next week, I have a special episode I'm really excited about. We'll feature Marie Cecile Anderson and Katie Frame, who make up the New York City-based musical comedy duo known as the Reformed Whores. They're on a mission to empower and normalize the female experience and bust a few guts in the process. They're co-hosts of the Difficult Women podcast, which is a fantastic combination of current affairs, feminism, social justice, and funny, irreverent conversation, plus a lovely blend of women's friendship. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com.